Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long Finish. I am your host, Tug Coker, and I'm here as always with my wife and co-host, Catherine Wild Coker. Night, Catherine. That was excellent, that intro. Thank you so much. I'm great. How are you? Good. Made it to the end of the week here. <laughs> Woo! How yeah. am I? Yeah, good. Okay. Reason to celebrate. We've made it to Fridays, taping this on Friday night. We're excited to have a long weekend, which uh, many in, in LA take, uh, Hollywood included, take that Monday off to celebrate MLK Day, which was exciting for our three-year-old who learned about MLK Junior today in preschool. And we know this because our preschool tapes notes on their chest with tape. They put masking tape and they, they write in Sharpie on it, either something that happened in particular to your child or just what they did in school as a group. It's very cute. I have a bunch of them in the closet saved for years to come. It is very cool. So we're excited about the weekend. I'm excited because there's football happening on Sunday. You're excited probably because you'll have an hour to be by yourself. Wait, when is that? I don't know. But oh, th- that's what you, you asked made for. That up? No, off air, you were like, I need an hour by myself. Find a time where I can be by myself. Yeah, every day I want that. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong in asking for that. It's not assumed. I need to ask. Well, I want to help you, but our kids are, uh, you know, they terrorized our life. Well, they both prefer, prefer you anyway. Yes. I've done it, <laughs> gang. I am the preferred parent. If that's the system you want to create, great. Because I will gladly step out and go read my book at the coffee shop. I don't necessarily need to be the preferred parent, but the youngest one especially is very clingy right now to me. Loves it. He wouldn't even go to me this morning. It was so sad. I'm like, I'm sorry. What am I, chopped liver? It's because we're roommates and that I spend the bulk of my night (laughs) in our three-year-old's bed so he wakes up in the morning this this literally happens so here, let me just paint the picture for everyone out there well let's go straight into what our night's about um a newsflash for those of you who've been joining us since episode one thank you and you've been hearing about our the trials and tribulations of trying to get our children to sleep we now have that one-year-old sleeping well sleeps 12 to 13 he's hours sleeping. a night we've done it he's so cozy he's just great 2019 was brutal, <gasps> mainly because he would never sleep, and now we've done it. He's sleeping great. Like you said, 12 hours. Problem is our three-year-old goes to bed, seven, gets up at 11, comes into our bed. I let him sleep for about 10 minutes. I pick him up and put him back in his bed nicely. Maybe three hours later, he comes back into our bed between two and four in the morning, and we can't put him back into the bed because we run the risk of waking up the youngest one. So, And if you wake up the baby... After 4 a.m., he's up. He's up. He can't go back to sleep. We've spent so many nights up at 4 a.m., all of us, just sort of... Before 4 is, like, fine. But from 4 to 7 is a very fragile time frame for everyone in the house. So what I do is, because we tried to sleep, the three of us in the same bed, the three-year-old, you, and me, but the three-year-old is a helicopter sleeper. He sleeps 360 degrees, slaps you in the face multiple times a night with both his hand and his foot. And it is tough, but I will say, in general, you're a lighter sleeper, and I am a solid, heavy, heavy sleeper. You take a punching better than I do? Is that what well, you're saying? Well, yeah. Sometimes I, don't even, punching? sometimes I don't even know he's in there until like you're taking him away. I'm like, oh, is he in here? I, I mean, I feel like I want to get a handle on this, but half the time, I don't even know what's happening. I just, you know, I'm a heavy sleeper. Yeah, it's true. So, uh, whatever. The kid punches me in the face. I'm going to wake up. I don't want to wake up both kids. 
so I go sleep in the bed. The one-year-old is, uh, he wakes up in the morning around seven o'clock and he's like, you know, just sort of slowly getting up and then he sees me in the bedroom and he gets so excited. Oh, that's so sweet. I will miss the day. I've said this before. Right now when I come home, I'm sure you do too, they're so excited. Oh, it's the best. I'm going to be very sad. When they don't notice. When they don't care. <laughs> I when know. they're watching a show on TV and they're like, what up, dad? When's dinner? Or you talk to them and they don't respond. Don't listen. <laughs> yeah, so I love the fact that you come home or I come home still. And there's, it's probably the most exciting part of their day. I know. It's the best feeling. So you take the good with the bad. We have one kid sleeping. We're trying to get this other one. We've developed a, a sticker system that is not working. The suggestion today that I got from the other moms in my parenting group was to put a sleeping bag on the floor in our bedroom maybe to start with that so he's not in the bed but he can get in the sleeping bag that means we have to get a sleeping bag but yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think i think that would be better at least he wouldn't be in it and waking us up we've run out of uh christmas wishes so maybe for valentine's dear you're gonna get yourself uh or maybe you know i'll get you a sleeping bag that's not for, for me valentine's day yep mm-hmm how is how Some I don't understand the re- related. It's know. for him. <laughs> I know, but it makes us both happy when he sleeps there. So right, so it's my present. Yeah, that's right. I don't understand this phenomenon. <laughs> well, as far as tonight goes, what do you think about tonight? I thought was we did a little flip flop because our youngest yeah. one is so tired. I thought tonight was awesome. The, one fun one thing that was fun was extra time with our three year old. Yeah, usually the three year old goes to bed before the baby because he just is a little bit louder in the room, and so if he's asleep, then it's easier to get the baby to sleep after. But the baby was so tired, so he went to bed at six thirty, but the older kid wasn't, and we had like an hour extra to spend with him, and it was really special. He was so excited about it. I mean, it almost made him kind of wild, but. He was so excited to have both his parents dedicated to spending time with him. It was really sweet. A couple nights this week, either you've put them to bed by yourself or I've done it. I did it the night before, and I've learned a lot about putting the kids to to bed by myself because I've tried different ways. I didn't know how you did it. You told me. Previously, I was trying to get the the oldest one, the three-year-old, to sleep first, and I would lock the one-year-old out and the one-year-old would just wail oh my gosh it's so sad it was sad he's like what are you guys doing to me i don't know why i did that i just felt like he would make noise or or i don't know why it was just a bad choice because it was just the most inconsolable crying as i'm trying to sing Bo doesn't care he even even if you're even if you're singing and the baby is in your arms and the baby is wailing in your arms Bo will still go to sleep it doesn't matter. Yeah. So I'm getting better being, uh, you know, solo dadding at night. You know, we solved a problem. This is the best part of 2020 so far, which has been a very funny year already. We're whatever, 16, 17 days in. But the highlight is the fact that we've got this child sleeping finally. He's sleeping. He's eating more than ever. He's less whiny during the day. Like his life has just changed. I've never seen He ate as much as a, a like a six foot five human last night. It was incredible. Brando made a full pot of brown rice earlier today for dinner tonight and he ate three quarters of it of a pot of brown rice <laughs> I, kept, I was like that's enough and then he kept wanting more yeah like, oh my god where's this rice going i have no idea well you, i have a feeling you're gonna see it tomorrow meow <laughs> <laughs> So, gang, here we are for episode 16. Sweet 16, baby. Sweet 16, we've done it. A lot of fun. Thank you to everyone that has 
uh, enter the contest. We're excited to announce the winner on next week's episode. We'll be doing the drawing this week. Thank you to everyone for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our show. It means a lot to us. And um, we're excited for the next few weeks, hoping to have a few guests on the show, if all goes according to plan, and uh, do some fun deep dives into some regions, varietals, etc. So we have a great wine to start this little run of, of episodes. What are we drinking tonight? We are drinking Pian Delorino. That's the name of the producer. It's the Rosso di Montalcino 2015. This is from Tuscany, Italy. Red wine, 100% Sangiovese. And if you want to get really specific... It's 100% Sangiovese Grosso. This producer is fantastic. We visited them, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. And it was one of the first biodynamic wineries that I had ever visited, which was so cool to see. It's a tiny little state, just six hectares, but it's just overflowing with life. The vineyards, there's uh, roses at the end of every row, and there's cover crops between the vines. It just looks lush and vibrant and alive. It, and there were some other markers of biodynamic preparations there. It was cool to see. And the owners are just these lovely, lovely people, Caroline and Jan. He's from Germany. She's from Alto Adige. And they always wanted to make wine in Tuscany. So they moved there. And they have this small winery. And they they were so generous in hosting us. And then they came to Esther's a couple years ago and did a tasting. They're just like fun and feel lighthearted. But their work is so, so serious in terms of their commitment to the environment and the health of their vineyards. And also just making fine, fine wine. So excited to drink this tonight. This wine is tasting great tonight i think as well and then i have a lot of fun memories because it was one of the first wineries we visited um, when we took our trip to italy a few years back right before esther's was opening i was learning more about uh, biodynamic practices interested to see the roses at the end of each row of vines also i remember um like the, the talk about you know burying like a goat head or like a skull a horn. A horn. Yeah, yeah, a cow horn. Cow horn. It's yeah. one of the preparations. First of all, it's a beautiful area. And it was the first time I learned about the proximity of places to other great estates. The fact that it's like right next door to a classic estate. Beyond Santi. They're right next door to Beyond Santi, which is epic. Probably the top producer of Brunello de Montoncino. And actually the first producer of Brunello back in the 1800s but they're just iconic and so the fact that this tiny little estate is next door and making completely different wines but e but in my mind really really special wines it's cool and that's interesting because you know so much of what makes wine special is the terroir and things of that nature and they have to be within that proximity of something that is considered also great but being small producers is like, wow, how do I get in touch with this family, this group of you know, family of farmers doing it themselves? Really special. So I thought tonight that we would just try something a little different and just kind of do a little deep dive into this winery, this varietal, this type, style of winemaking, and just kind of talk about those things. All these things I know you're passionate about, including the farming and the way in which the wine is made, which we'll talk about many times over this year. So where would you like to start? Well, I guess we talked about the winery already a little bit, but maybe something bigger to talk about is where we are. So Italy, Tuscany, Central Italy. Most people know Tuscany. They think of Chianti, Chianti Classico, or many, many people know Brunello. But what is Brunello? What is Chianti? They're regions. And the primary grape in Tuscany 
And actually, probably the most grown grape in all of Italy is Sangiovese. So when you think of Europe, you think of... When you think of Europe, you talk about wines from regions. We say this over and over on the podcast. When you talk about old world wines, you talk about regions, not grapes. Regions, not varietals. Exactly. And Sangiovese is the most prominent grape variety in Tuscany and also all of Italy. So what is Sangiovese? It's a red grape variety, obviously. It's kind of medium bodied. It has medium to high acid, medium to high tannin, and it's dry. But it's really, really versatile, depending on if you age it in oak. If you age it in oak for only a little bit or a few years, or if you give it a light maceration with the skins, like two weeks, or if you give it a long maceration, six weeks. If it's extracted, if it's a lighter style, they're just, it has a lot of range for a red wine. And so people can refer to it as like a more modern style or a traditional style or an oaky style or a fresher style. There's just lots of styles of Sangiovese. What's but the style that we're drinking tonight? I would say that this is not a heavy style. It's a lighter style, an elegant style, but it's still in the traditional realm. It's not modern in any sense, and it's not overly extracted in any sense. It's it's really balanced. It's a really pure and balanced version of Sangiovese. Traditional, but really light on its feet. Do you want to talk about the winemaking for this particular wine? Yeah, so this is Sangiovese, obviously. We've just been talking about that. But you mentioned the specific. You said you want to get specific. It's this. So what does that mean exactly? The Sangiovese Grosso? Sangiovese is, like I said, it's all over Italy. There are so many different clones of Sangiovese. Always the clone in Montalcino is Sangiovese Grosso. So we're in Montalcino, right? There's roasted Montalcino and then there's Brunello de Rosso Montalcino. Tonight we're drink- drinking roasted Montalcino. The only difference is the aging. Same grapes, Sangiovese Grosso, Rosso di Montalcino, aged in oak at least one year, Brunello di Montalcino, aged at least four years, two of which have to be in oak, and Brunello Reserva, five years, three of which have to be in oak. So there's just more aging and more oak with Brunello. It's a wine meant to be age-worthy in your cellar. Generally, for Sangiovese, I would say drink you know, four to eight, within four to eight years. But Brunello, maybe like 10 to 20 years you could drink or more. And because of the aging, that usually equates with cost in some way, right? Like things are more affordable. For sure. When they're they're aged less, they're more affordable. So the Rosso is like your drink early, fresher, younger, less expensive. The Brunello is your top top, top wine of your winery, and it's meant for aging. I like drinking the Rosos. One, because, I mean, you and I just like drinking fresher, lighter wines. But two, it's such a great way to get to know the style of a producer. So you don't have to spend the money on the Brunello yet. Drink the Rosso, see if you like that producer, then go get the Brunello to put in your cellar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. It's the same as like in Burgundy or any other region, drinking the like entry level wine first to see if you like that winery. I like that idea a lot. That's why I thought this would be fun. What are you going to ask me next? So let's get this question out of the way. It's a question I always ask. We know there's going to be Sangiovese at every wine store in America. Mandatory. 
If they don't have it, walk out of the wine store. Yeah, unless it's specific and it's like this is a French wine store. Or American or or California or whatever. But every other wine store is going to have it. So whether it's Sangiovese or a Rosso version of Sangiovese, how do you find people, direct people to finding like the entry level? Let's say, let's say the entry-level wines for Sangiovese. I mean, anyone who works in a wine store is going to know that Grape Friday. So it's great to just be like, I'm interested in Sangiovese. And I think that says more than just Chianti. Because so many people, if they're coming in looking for Chianti, I feel like they're looking for their version of Chianti or Sangiovese or something safe that they know they can say that they've had before and they liked. They might not know that it's even Sangiovese. Most of the time they don't, you know, they just like know that place or that they've had that wine or it's super familiar to them. But Sangiovese broadens your spectrum a little bit more. It broadens it because you might get a Sangiovese from a region that's lesser known, but a really good producer and you could have a lot of value in that wine. You might try a Sangiovese from a different area, not Chianti, not Tuscany, maybe Umbria, maybe some other region in central Italy and be surprised at a new region, but still have that similarity, that feeling of, oh yeah, I've had something like this before. And it's also just, it's not too tannic. It's not too acidic. It's just a generally pleasing grape variety. Whereas, for example, Nebbiolo, which is the grape variety in Barolo and Barbaresco, such high tannins. It's an amazing grape variety and so many regions that we love, but you know, it's not everyone's favorite because it it is so tannic. So Sangiovese, I think, is just a little bit easier, a little more pleasing and also more affordable too. What are the sort of the connotations of the difference between like a Sangiovese from Brunello versus like Chianti, just generally speaking? I think for for sure. Like, like out in the world, if someone says, I want a Chianti versus something else, like what, what are they expecting? I mean, in general, Brunello just has more tannin and more body. It's a more full-bodied, more serious wine. It comes from the oak aging. It comes from the, the area in Tuscany where it is. And Chianti, Chianti is generally a little bit lighter style, doesn't have that tannic structure, doesn't have like the depth that the Brunello does in general. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. We had a Chianti that was an older Chianti in the cellar at Esther's. Uh, I think we sold through it last year, but it was a 2000 Castellan Villa is the name of the producer or Castellan Villa. And it was awesome to taste that Chianti from, you know, almost 20 years ago. But that's not common. Like Mm -hmm. usually you're not seeing Chianti with that many years on it. It's great wine to drink like we can be drinking a 2015 Chianti now. That's perfect. Now let's circle back to the wine that we're having tonight because they're such thoughtful winemakers. How are they putting this wine together? It, the Rosso is aged one year in oak. Any other specifics we need to know about the process of their winemaking that makes it so unique and special? Well, I think, first of all, a ton of it goes into the farming. They're obsessed with meticulous farming and biodynamics. Should I talk about biodynamics Absolutely. Now? now, this is something we want to talk about over the course of the year, different ways of uh, farming grapes, but biodynamics is, is one of them. Well, yeah, and I think it is one thing that makes this winery special because they were either the first or one of the first wineries in Montalcino to be 
certified biodynamic. And to be certified is through one organization called Demeter. But basically, biodynamics, in a nutshell, it's an alternative method of agriculture. It's based on principles developed by an Austrian philosopher named Rudolf Steiner in the 1920s. And it's a holistic, even spiritual approach to farming. Some people liken it to a farmer's almanac view of farming. Essentially, there's an energy between everything in the farm. It's a complete ecosystem. But beyond that, everything in the world, in the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, people, there's just an a holistic energy between everything. I see my mom going like, okay, hippies. But when I say farmer's almanac, I think that sort of hits it for people that it is spiritual in a sense, but it's also just a really old way of doing things. I mean, you people, know, we're talking about like, you know, moon cycles right. with this, right? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. There's energy between everything. There's yeah. a different energy when the moon is waning and waxing and like, and there's a biodynamic calendar with different days yeah. and you do different tasks in the vineyard on different days. Fruit days, flower days, root days, leaf days, certain days you plant, certain days you irrigate, certain days you harvest. There's no chemicals allowed in the vineyard. There's no chemicals in the winemaking. And then there are certain preparations that you you do to give health to the vineyard. So biodynamics was actually started before organics. Organic movement didn't come around till like the 1940s. So that's kind of something interesting to note. But whereas organics is about what you're not doing to the vineyard, what you're not spraying, the chemicals that you're not using, biodynamics is holistic in a sense and it involves things that you are doing these preparations. And one of them is what you mentioned before about the horn, the cow's horn. So that's called process 500. And it's taking manure from a female cow, putting it in a female horn. Do females have horns? No. Okay. Uh, Putting it in a horn and burying it in your vineyard or in your farm, a certain spot in your farm, for the duration of winter, probably like six months. And it has two purposes. One purpose is that it's like feeding your soils. It's like a homeopathic medicine for the soil, giving life to the soil, a soil inoculant. It's a rich substance. And then the other part is when you dig that up at the end of winter, you take that and you create this spray that you spray over your plants. It's almost like a really dense compost to enhance plant growth. And the spiritual part of that is that you're burying something with death and decay and that's breathing life into the earth and into your vineyard. Okay, hippie. Yeah, I'm drinking the juice. I mean, you're, you know, as a gal from Boulder, Colorado, obviously I've been much more thoughtful about the food and the drink that I put into my body. And I think this is one of the next big movements for people, just it understanding is. what goes into your body. And I think this is very eye-opening. Don't they hang something as well, like underneath? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are so yeah. many different preparations yeah. or things. I forget what it is, but they, they, they were hanging um, something. I think it was a goat bladder. It's a goat and bladder. And that was also goat full of a different preparation. But I like the idea of death and decay giving life to to something. I don't know that much about biodynamics. I'm trying to learn and understand it. And what I do know is that I've tasted wonderful wines that have been produced with this method of farming and not so wonderful wines that have been produced with this method of farming. And I've even had biodynamic 
pasta sauce. Like it, it doesn't have to be a wine. You know, it is just a method of farming. I see it in wine more than anything else. But um, one thing is true. The farming's going to be meticulous because there's so many things you have to do. Absolutely. And, and focus on. So the people are really in tune with their plants and their farm and the ecosystem that they're creating. That is for sure. And Piando Delarino is obsessed with that. Is the meticulousness of the farming often baked into biodynamic product? Is it more expensive because of the, the amount of time and energy and labor they have to put into their products? You mean are the wines more expensive? Correct. I mean, or, or biodynamic wines in general, because you said they're so meticulous, there's so much work, labor involved. Yeah, I know. mean, and same with organic wines and same with any wine that, that takes more time and thoughtfulness and care in the vineyard. At the base level, if you're going to, let's just say, you want your grapes to be harvested by people hand harvested rather than machines that's going to be more expensive but think about how the people are going to handle every cluster of grapes versus a machine they're going to make sure that they're only picking the best fruit they're going to handle it with care they're going to look through everything it's just a different way of treating your plants in your vineyard and it's based on the kind of wine that you want to make yeah so if I'm making huge jug wine, why would I pay for that? I don't care. You know, I'm just going to have run my machine through it. But if I want to make a wine that's complex for people to sit and have their podcast over, then I'm definitely going to hand harvest it. Shout out to hand harvesting. <laughs> I, it just, it's what do you, what's your goal? You know? Well, that's very interesting. I'm really excited that we ha have this conversation because I know it's a conversation that's going to keep coming back into some of our podcasts. Um, now let's go to one of the fun parts about wine, which is food pairings. What do you think goes well with Sangiovese and uh, things from the region? Well, let's talk about it for a second. What are you getting with this wine right now uh, as far as profile? Black cherry, black plum, red plum, tomato leaf, tomato, kind of like a leather and a dusty earth. I feel like tomato, tomato leaf is like one of the common denominator traits and profiles of Italian wine. Well, it's specifically Sangiovese. You're 100% right. Yeah. I get like a sweet balsamic too, fig maybe, and then some herbs, which is that's for me is always Italy, like, I don't know, oregano or something. So what are we making with Sangiovese? So I'm definitely making like a lamb ragu with a uh, pappardelle or something. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, any, I mean, you get the tomato leaf, so it kind of screams pasta yep. and sauce Makes and sense. stewy meats. But Sangiovese is really versatile, like, you know, so you could have something lighter. But golly, pasta is really what I want right now. I mean, we're in the middle of winter. Not so cold here in L.A. as it is, I'm sure, in other parts of the country. But, you know, when the days are short and you come home at night and just kind of want something comforting, it feels like... Going Sangiovese is like a perfect route to take. For sure. Sangiovese is funny to me because it's the first wine that I remember drinking. It was actually Chianti. I'm pretty sure it was Rufino, that brand, you know, you've seen everywhere. Of course. It was in high school and I had a boyfriend, Mark Wunsch, and his dad had us over for dinner and his dad made spaghetti and meatballs and he opened up this wine. I'm like a sophomore in high school and I was like, what? What? Yeah, that was my thought too. And he poured glasses for us and I had one taste and I was like, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, I mean, obviously I didn't drink it. I'm like, this is so, how do people drink this? Oh, but it was one of the first times, it was the first time someone had ever poured wine for me. And it was one of the first times that, I don't know, I'd ever looked at a bottle and thought, well, what is that? And forever I will remember that little rooster on it. And of the, course. 
you know? Will we be the kind of parents that will pour glasses of wine for our kids? Never for a boyfriend or girlfriend. No. <laughs> that was like... My, my mom was so adamant <laughs> no. about the, not like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah right. You're going to drink something? Yeah, right. Well, it is a little different because it's kind of our business and we have a wine shop so i can see like special dinners for a holiday everyone getting poured a special wine and us all enjoying that and letting them in the future smell wines and have little tastes of things but having glasses of wine no no well what's funny about that is the don't you can't drink can't drink just feeds into the kids like i gotta do what my parents tell me i can't do but if you develop some sort of healthy relationship to it and you talk about wine in a way that we're talking about it I'm, ho- I'm i mean i'm sure it won't be true but i'm hoping that they have an, like a healthy relationship to alcohol right off the bat yeah exactly knows? not like we're not like let's all sit around and have beers together but like I, we want you to appreciate this in the way we do or at least understand why we appreciate this was that the first alcohol that you ever had well other than church wine yeah yeah mine was um peach schnapps like at a party or yeah, something yeah yeah, some senior in high school oh my gave, God. gave it to me when I was like a freshman or something. I, was, I, and I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever tasted in my life. <laughs> alcohol is so disgusting. It's beer too. It's just, oh, maybe I had a sip of my dad's beer before that right. and be like, oh, this is so gross. Yeah. How far we've come. Look at this now. We have it's a ridiculous. podcast about wine. I know. I mean, we could talk about the wines that- <laughs> Hilarious that we first like when we were getting to know each other. It'd be other, the worst. It'd be the worst ones. The yeah. ones that we like for, used to like when we were first starting out were not were not good. No, it was just like. But also, we would get a half bottle of wine and be fine with that. Yeah, we thought a half bottle. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like, uh, is there a Magnum? Yeah, yeah, exactly. From just for me. Yeah. Um, we each get our own yeah. Magnum. His and hers magnums would be an unbelievable. That like, is hilarious. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, anything else we want to talk about uh, regarding this wine or the region or anything else you want to bring up? I thought it was a nice, fun conversation. A little more in depth than we usually go, which, but it's but it's nice. I know. I hope it's not like too uh, whiny. If you're out there, let us know. We like your feedback. So if you're interested in talking, hearing us talk more about in-depth about wines, let us know. If you want us to talk about a specific varietal. Less technical stuff. Yeah, let us know. More technical. Wait, yeah. Someone sent us a message on Facebook the other day, and I'm not going to give it away, but that's going to be our topic for next week. So the ideas are great. Please send them. So anything else on your end? I think I'm just going to enjoy... The wine, if that's cool with you. Yeah, of course. So if you're out there, go uh, to your local wine merchant and ask for a Sangiovese. See what you get. See what you get. Try maybe a Rosso. Understand like we're, we're okay Rosso with- de Montalcino. Rosso de Montalcino. Talk about like the entry level wine of stuff. See how you feel and then we'll move up the list. But very pleasing wine, like very approachable for a lot of people. Would you say affordable in the world of wines or no? Such a range. I mean, Brunello, you're going to pay a lot. But entry level Chianti, probably not that much. You know, that's going to be affordable. And also uh, just a Sangiovese that isn't part of a deal that's like kind of a table wine Sangiovese from Italy. Those are the wines that you go into the little, when you're on vacation and you go into some restaurant and you're like, oh, it was the family that owned the restaurant and they gave us their wine. It was the Sangiovese. It was the best wine I've ever tasted. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. And it's so, it's true. Like they probably did nothing to it. It was such a simple, simple wine and perfect. 
Perfect table wine. Anytime someone comes in esters and asks for them, like, God, I wish I could give that to you, but I cannot give you another trip to Italy. So here, try this <laughs> instead. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, one other thing. I mean, we're, we're trying to create this conversation with you all. Like like I said, if you have thoughts on what we want to talk about next, please hit us up. DM us at the long finish on Instagram or TLF pod on Twitter or at the long finish.com or um, next time you're drinking a wine, post it on Instagram and tag us. Let us know what you're drinking. We're, we're just excited to see out there people being thoughtful about the wines that they're drinking. And maybe you've had a, uh, something that we've talked about or maybe there's something that you want us to talk about. So hit us up and tag us on uh, an Instagram story. That's fun. Uh, I would also say if you're like totally into nerding out and you want to go deep into the world of Italian wine, this book, Native Wine Grapes of Italy by Ian Dagata. Oh my goodness, what a book. It's like an amazing textbook. And then the classic Italian wine book is Vino Italiano, The Regional Wines of Italy by Joseph Bastianich and David Lynch. It's a classic. All right, now we move on to the last portion of the evening, which is what is inspiring us this week. I'm going to go first because mine is a shout out to my friend Andy Ruther, who, for those who listen to the podcast because of sometimes I guest host uh, a sports podcast called The Dirty Sports, Andy Ruther is basically the CEO and mastermind of that podcast along with his partner, Joe Prano. And I basically know everything about podcasts because of two people. One is Jenny Rattlett, who I talked about in a previous episode. The other is Andy Ruther. Andy Ruther, I watch him grow his podcast i watch him interact with his the listeners of his podcast he's a little more edgy than i am i'm a little more conservative when it comes to um things that i say in in the sports world but he is just so smart so thoughtful such a loving person he's back in cincinnati because he recently lost his mom and i've been filling in for him on the, the dirty sports podcast the last two weeks and i just have all the love in the world for andy ruther and i'm so grateful to have him in my life i love learning from him and being his friend and um, I'm excited for him to come back to L.A. and take his position back with Dirty Sports. But um, but this is just me saying how much I appreciate and uh, and I love learning from a friend. And, yeah, that's what inspiration is all about, right? So, Catherine, what do you have? Well, what a surprise. I have another book. Although I will say I'm trying out listening to an audiobook right now, which is new for me. I have been kind of averse to this in the past because I don't always love other people reading. But I'm trying it and I'm liking it on Audible on my phone. This book is called Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. And although maybe that sounds like a self-help book, everyone needs to get this self-help. It is fascinating, helpful. I would like to buy this book for every human that I know. I just think it's fantastic. It's by Douglas Stone, Bruce Patton, and Sheila Heen of the Harvard Negotiation Project. So they've studied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of difficult conversations. These are conversations with a boss, with a partner, with your kids, uh, with a landlord, like anything in life you can think of. And they've come to the conclusion of what part, what are the tenets of those conversations, how to understand them better, understand yourself in them better, and then also like when to have them, if you have them, the conversation to have with yourself before you have them. It's like an insanely powerful book. And it's funny that I'm listening to the audio version because I feel like now I got to get the the hard copy and like highlight it uh, and then keep it by my bed and then refer to it when I need to like go deep with somebody but I'm gonna get it for you so just you wait have they studied the tenets of the debate or discussion between a um 
two parents on who's going to change the dirty diaper? Not specifically the diaper, but household duties, yes. Oh, really? Yeah. You should probably read that. (laughs) I did. And I, well, I listened to it and I related a lot. It was like unbelievable. Yeah, I feel like I know uh, most of that stuff already. Hmm. (laughs) What What did we say? The joke, we saw this on a New Yorker cartoon or somewhere else. We don't want to be taking this for someone. I know, but it's so good. But we said marriage is understanding the audible breaths of your partner. Do that one again. Hmm. Yeah, you're annoyed with me. It's just so right on. That <laughs> quote is just, yeah. All right, folks. Thank you for joining us for episode 16 of The Long Finish We love doing the podcast, so as I said, if you have a chance to hit us up, DM, shoot us a shot of what you're drinking on Instagram, or rate, review, and subscribe to our show wherever you find podcasts, we would love it so much. And we look forward to having some exciting podcasts in the coming weeks with a couple guests, some surprise guests, once we confirm those dates. So things are looking up for The Long Finish in 2020. Catherine, where can they find you and The Long Finish on social media? For me, on Instagram at Catherine Wild Coker and Facebook, Catherine Wild Coker. And The Long Finish is also on Instagram at The Long Finish and on Facebook, The Long Finish. You can find me at Tug Coker on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, that's it. You've done it. Episode 16 is in the books. Everyone go out there, have a great week, and we will see you next week here. Until then, happy drinking. Ciao.